praise the Lord for those truths we sang today. In a mighty fortress, we sang that he is Lord Sabaoth, which means that he is Lord who never has known, never will know defeat. So he alone is worthy of our praise, of our allegiance. And when we would think he was defeated, when Christ was on the cross, that is where our victory was won. Satan, death, and hell defeated by God the Son. And all of that in our minds and our hearts. Um, pray our hearts are softened as we prepare to hear from his word this morning. Have you ever asked the question, why did I do that? Why did I do that? What was I thinking? Or maybe you remember more often times when you might have said, why did you do that? We're much more prone to find faults in others, right? We get that beam firmly planted in our own eye. Or what were they thinking? These are good questions. They're not wrong questions. And the Bible has answers for these questions. Realize these are questions of motivation. It's fair to ask why we did what we did. We're prone to simply look at the final product. We're prone just to look at our actions and the consequences of our actions. The stuff we don't like. Our actions and the consequences of those actions. Or, maybe even more so, other people's actions and our consequences as a result of their actions. That one really gets us. (laughs) It's easy to see why. Uh, We often allow those consequences, namely our emotions, then drive our future actions. Meaning this, if I feel good about it, then I'm going to do it. If I feel bad about it, if it doesn't make me feel right, then I won't. And that is a bad idea. That's no way to live. Uh, Surely you've heard this encouragement before. Go and follow your heart. Follow your heart. Do whatever your heart tells you to do. Uh, And now in a way, that's just saying, uh, do what feels right. But in the word of God and elsewhere, the heart, the heart is a word that refers to the inner man. Uh, the intellect, the will, the emotions. It's, it's the way you think, the things that you think. That's the heart. Uh, we often think of the heart as just the, the thump, the thump in our chest, moving blood through our body, right? But in the Bible, the heart isn't just the muscle in your chest. It's who you are. The inner man, the immaterial you. So as it turns out, we always do follow our hearts. You just do. That is the way God made you. So we don't need that admonition. We don't need to be told to follow our hearts, because as it turns out, we already are following our hearts. Now, they didn't understand that they were saying it that way, but in truth, it's already true. So thank you, Disney princesses. We've got it from here. Okay? (laughs) Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart. For everything you do, the springs of life, everything you do flows from it, the heart. So then, our actions, our feelings, 
they're not the target for correction. We often want to correct how we feel. But that's not the right target. If everything that we do flows from the heart, then the heart has to be the target. To just go after our feelings and try to fix the way we feel about things is like putting a band-aid on a person's chest who is internally bleeding. It looks good. It looks like you're doing something to try to make it feel better and make the pain go away, but all that's happening is the person's getting worse in the midst of your efforts. So that's no way to go. The heart is the target. And so the right thing to do for us is to go to God's word for help because nobody knows our hearts like him. And we're going to go to that first time when somebody said, why did you do that? In Genesis 3, as we look at the fall together today. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Let's pray. Ask God to help us as we look into his word. Father, again, we thank you. You are the God who has never known defeat. You're our creator. You made us. And in your power, in your omniscience, you spoke everything into existence. And it was very good. And you made us. And you made us in your image. And you know everything there is to know about us. Not just the very number of uh, hairs on our head, but every thought and desire of our heart and our deepest secrets. God, you know it all. God, I thank you that you, knowing everything about us, you love us. That you gave us Christ. That you've made us your children. God, I pray that you would give us humility today to submit ourselves to the truth of your word. God, help us to know who we are better because you've told us who we are. And then, God, give us grace to obey your word and to apply it to our lives in such a way that we'll be able to see the blessings of following what you've said, of acknowledging you as the one who truly knows us. I pray you'd be glorified by it, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent... You ever wonder why it was a serpent? I don't have the answer. But I know this. Revelation 12, 9 says that ancient serpent who is the... Who is it? It's the devil and Satan. That's who the serpent is. Okay? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... I kind of wish that was in italics. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now think about it, that's the wrong question. The question should have been, and we say that, obviously that's just silly to think that, but the question should have been, did God actually say you're not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That seems to be the direct question, right? But Satan is a great deceiver. Is anything direct with him? he is going to deceive. And so he asked, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course, the answer to that is no. God didn't say that. 
So this question that Satan asks Eve forces her to say, no, God didn't say that. Do you see what he's doing? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst. That is that tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The question is, where did that part of that command come from? You can't touch it. Now, interestingly, in Genesis 2, God gives the command not to eat from that tree before it is observed that it is not good for man to be alone. So who heard with their own ears the command? Adam. So where did Eve get this information from? Now, maybe, I'm speculating, okay? Maybe Adam was being a protective husband. He said, Eve? (laughs) He hadn't named her Eve yet, but let's just pretend. Eve? God said, don't eat of that tree. Don't even touch it. Or something like that. Put a little fence around it, right? To make sure that she doesn't disobey. And Eve translates this to, this is God's command. Interesting. But the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, and this is this great lie, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God knows something you don't, and it's being withheld from you, Eve. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, those two things are almost inconsequential. It's just a physical desire and appetite for what she sees. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And we could say wise meaning what? Well, it's like a little G God. This fruit is something that would make her like a, a God. Like the Most High God. That ought to sound familiar to us. In Isaiah, when we see a mention of of Satan's fall, his desire, his ambition was to be like the Most High God. And he shares now this ambition with the woman. When she saw it, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband, who was on the other side of the garden. Is that what that says? That's why you are good Bereans, right? No, it says that the husband was with her. Where was Adam? With her. Okay, Mr. Put-up-a-fence-for-your-wife guy. Where are you now? Right? If we're thinking about Adam's responsibility as a husband... First of all, think about this. If Adam's there the whole time, what is Satan doing talking to Eve? Why isn't she, why isn't he talking to Adam? Remember, Satan's doing everything off base. The only thing Satan did directly was lie. That he did directly. Everything else was a shade off to the left or to the right. And what's Adam's responsibility here? 
If he's Mr. Put-Up-A-Fence man, then he needs to put up a fence right about now. I just envision him jumping in front and knocking the fruit away as Eve brought it up to her mouth. And knocked that fruit off, flying into the air, crushing onto the floor. Satan going, no! Except he didn't because he was a serpent. But we would think that's what Adam ought to be doing, but he doesn't do that. It says that he was with her and he... Eight. Do you know why Adam didn't do those things like he should have done as a good husband? Because he wanted to be like the Most High God. So if my wife wants to be the one to go first, I'll throw her under the bus and then I'll jump right in because I want it just as bad. Advocating his responsibility as the husband, letting her drop first, and then following with her. And what was the command? You will surely die Adam lets her eat first. She's become the cupbearer for the king. If she drops, I'll know not to eat. That's good husbandry right there. And we laugh about those things, but it's pretty gross, isn't it? Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened. That's part of the promise that Satan gave that kind of came true but not the way he said it. He told them their eyes were going to be opened, and and they were. They were. And this is what their eyes were opened to immediately. It says they knew that they were naked. They were ashamed. The feeling of shame for the first time ever. And as a result, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. At this point, if God is maybe like a little more like us, we would read something like, and so God zapped them, they turned back into dust, and he made two more. And behold, they were very good. But that's not what happens. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, whether they desired to have that relationship or not, it is what they were. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. This is sadness. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Their understanding is darkened. Their fellowship, their relationship with him is severed. Their fear is altered. Where previously they would have had a reverence and an awe of God that would have compelled them to obey and to love and enjoy and work in the garden and be fruitful and multiply and all the things that God had asked them to do. Not that kind of fear, but a dread, a fright to run away from him. Remember Psalm 73, 28 said, but for me, Asaph wrote this, but for me it is good To be near God. Not so for Adam and Eve. Not so for us in our sin. So they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Think about what else is gone. Their their awareness of the glory of God. Are those trees that he spoke into existence all of a sudden going to hide them from his presence? Their understanding is darkened. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
Did God not know where they were? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Think about what we learn about God here. Remember, the book of Genesis was written to the children of Israel and then by uh, nature to us. And so we are learning about who God is as he reveals himself in these beginnings to mankind, to his creation. Who went to who first? Did Adam run to God and say, help me, help me, help me. I mean us. Did he say that? No, God came down and presented himself to his creation. And did God say, Adam, you sinner, you ate. No, God says, where are you? What does God allow in these questions? There's a saying that says that accusations harden the heart. But a question will prick the conscience. So who's learning right now? Is God learning? Or is God the one who created man, who knows what man is? giving man the best opportunity to learn of himself and to know who he is and what's happened. It'd be good for us to use that, to ask questions. Proverbs 18 says that to give an answer before hearing the whole matter, it's folly, it's foolishness, and it's shame. And he does, he asks, man, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? The man could have said here, yes, Lord. Yes. You didn't tell me to do too many things. You didn't tell me not to do too many things. But I disobeyed you. I wanted something more than what you made me to be. I believed a lie. I didn't, I didn't protect my wife like you made me to do. I failed. Adam says instead, and we're not bashing Adam. Okay, we're not better. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Blame. Point in the finger. Our first instinct is to say, Adam blamed the woman. It's the woman. She made me do it. And that's the first word in the order there. But Adam says, the woman whom you gave me. Remember in Genesis 2, Adam names all of these animals on day 6. God brings all of these animals before him. And he sees and realizes there is not a helper fit for him. He's alone. And God agreed this is not good. And he made a helper fit for him. And when God presents Eve to Adam, he says, finally, at last. Today, 
He says, you, you gave me this woman. And now look what's happened. Bad move. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? I love how God goes with us. <laughs> what is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. More blame. It was the serpent's fault. Now next week, we're going to go ahead, and we're not done yet, but next week, we're going to go into God's response. But for now, there's too much here to learn to find out what's going on with us, what's going on in our hearts, because we are men and women, and God made us in his image, and we are just like Adam and Eve. So there's a lot of learning to do here. Let's, let's pay attention to the word of God in this time of the fall. This is going to serve for us like an x-ray, like the blueprint of the human heart. Follow your heart, we said, and, and we also agree that we always do. We always do what we want. The simple way to say it, why do I do what I do? Because I want what I want. That's it. Seems too easy to be true, but that is the deal. We do what we do because we want what we want. So here's, here's the order of went down, what went down here in Genesis 3. Number one, deception. Deception. Satan said to Eve, you will not surely die. The idea was that God is holding you back. God's keeping you from all that you could be. Reach for the stars, okay? Achieve your dreams. Be all that you can be. You could have more, and you could be better than what God told you. These deceptions were given, which then welled up in her heart and in Adam's heart as doubt doubt. And what would they be doubting at this point? Obviously, there's the literal aspect of this fruit, whether it's good or not. They think, well, maybe this fruit's better than what we thought it was. But there's obviously something more to that than just the fruit and the nature of the fruit. If God told me this is not good and that I should not eat it, but it's actually good for me, then now what do I think about God? Do I trust that he is good? Do I believe that he has my best interest in mind? Do I believe that he's made me for a good and glorious purpose? Or do I see him now as a tyrant that's holding me back and making sure I don't get what he has and he keeps it all to himself? I think very bad things and I think very low things about God. They doubt him. They also doubt that he's the only way. If God isn't who we thought he was, then maybe there are other options. Maybe there's another way to happiness. Maybe there's another way to power. Maybe there's another way. These doubts resulted in desires. A desire like, I can make my own decision. I can find my own path. 
I could be like the Most High God. Think about wanting to be that. And when we, in humility and in truth, think about all that God is, we very easily and quickly say, there's no way I could be all that God is. But once we have debased him, once we have brought him down to our level or even beneath as if he exists to serve us and our good pleasures, then what kind of desires could creep into our hearts? We could certainly say that I could be like the Most High God or even that I could be better than that God. And then disobedience. We do what we do because we want what we want, and here it is. We could certainly say the act of eating the fruit was disobedience, and that's definitely what we could see with the eye. But there's also the inaction of Adam. Was Adam in sin before he actually bit into that fruit? We say, well, he wasn't doing too great. <laughs> we could at least say that. Uh, the disobedience is not just eating the fruit. The disobedience has already been occurring in their hearts. The fruit eating was just the manifestation of what was already going on. Proverbs 4, guard your hearts. For from it flow the springs of life. Sin is all the way into our deepest inner selves. And that disobedience took place, and right on the heels of that disobedience, what happened? They saw and they were ashamed. Disgust. They were disgusted with themselves. The guilt, the shame. Their eyes were opened as promised. And they didn't like what they saw. So what do you do when you're disgusted and you have no hope? And you really want people to think you're amazing because you were just wanting to be like the Most High God. You'd better disguise your inadequacy. So you disguise yourself. They did it with clothing, right? They tried to sew those fig leaves together. But they certainly were trying to disguise themselves by hiding in the garden. They ran off into the bushes. And they also disguised through excuses. Did you eat? Well, it was the woman that you gave me. Eve, is this true? It was the serpent. Was it the serpent? Did the serpent do wrong? Sure. Did the serpent make Eve eat? Did the serpent make Eve make Adam because God made her to not jump in and intervene? That's a lot of finger pointing. That's a disguise. Finger pointing is a disguise. This is what's happening. And when we are in sin, when we're in sin, it's not just like what Adam and Eve did. Okay, we're not eating fruit in sin. Generally, we need to eat more fruit and less chocolate, right? But there was deception. We believed something that wasn't true. So we doubted the giver of that truth. Maybe the Bible isn't as important as I am hearing it is, and I should base my experiences. I should take my experiences and let them speak to what I do and who I am. Or my friends' comments. Or my movie that I watched. Or whatever the case may be. 
And that turned into desires in our hearts. It shaped our hearts and made us want things that we wouldn't or shouldn't want. And then we did what we did because we wanted what we wanted. And then in our sin, after our disobedience, after our actions, emotions and feelings come. Notice when the feelings happen. Was it before or after? After. After. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. And because we don't want to deal with what is true, because we don't want to deal with reality, we cloak it. We cover it up. And we can use all kinds of things this world has to offer. Distractions, entertainment, relationships, anything you can think of, we've thought of, to distract us from reality, to disguise ourselves. There's hope. (laughs) Turn to John 15 with me. Turn to John chapter 15. Fittingly, these are the words of Jesus. And know this, as we get into this passage, I'll give you a little sneak preview into next week. After the fall, God works right away to bring about redemption. And so these things that we're going to read in John 15 are true for everyone who has called upon the name of the Lord and is saved. Repentance is not possible outside of the gift of God, of faith, and repentance and change. But here's what it looks like in John 15, starting in verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You see on the screen, on John, in John 15, we have the answer to all that is the fall, all that is sin. Adam and Eve heard deception. They heard something that was not the truth of God. Jesus said, abide in me, let my words abide in you. Truth. Truth. And then when that truth is abiding in us, we're abiding in Him. The relationship there, it gives us belief. We believe that the things that God says are true, are true. And when that is how we think, 
Those become the things that we desire. You could say it this way, I do what I do because I want what I want, and then take it a step up. I want what I want because I think what I think. And when we want to do good, when we want to be pleasing to God, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, dead or alive, whether present or absent, I make it my ambition to be pleasing to Him. When that's your desire, guess what you will be prone to do? You'll want to be pleasing to Him. And you'll obey. Bearing fruit. If you'll be my disciples, if you'll abide in me, my words abide in you. Bearing much fruit. Keeping my commandments. And then Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, then your joy will be made full. Is joy a word of emotion? Yes. Can Christians have emotion? You'd better. And guess what that emotion is when you're following Jesus with your whole heart? Joy. Joy. It's happy. You know, people say, well, joy is this and happiness is this. Eh, yeah. But I'm pretty happy when I'm full of joy. Would you agree with that? And that happiness is not just because I sang a song. <laughs> it's deeper than that. The things that I sing, that I know to be true, that I see evidenced in my life as I believe and as I follow and as I desire and I obey and I see that it's worked out in my life and I'm obeying the Lord and it gives me joy. It's all there. And then in 1 John, when we're living this way, remember 1 John is all about evidence of your salvation, knowing that you have eternal life. And John said that you know when you're walking in the light. Adam and Eve ran into the darkness. But we're followers of Christ. We can be in the light as he is in the light. And why can I be in the light? Because I have joy. And why do I have joy? Because I'm following Christ. And why? Because I believe that what he says to be true. And it gives me desires in my heart. My heart. The heart is the target. These other scriptures speak to this as well. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't believe the lies of this world. But be transformed by the what? The renewal of your mind. Change your thinking. That by testing, doing the things that you're learning to do, you may discern what is the will of God, that it's good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on, then, the new self. What had to happen before the new self could be put on? The changing of your thinking. To put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above. The truth, 
not on things that are of this earth. Psalm 37, 4. Delight. Delight yourself in the Lord. Get after enjoying God. Delight yourself in the Lord. And when you do, it says, He will give you the desires of your heart. That does not mean that if you read your Bible, pray every day, your wealth will grow, grow, grow. That is not what that's saying. What it is saying is that when you get after delighting in God, the desires that were in your heart, the old man, God's going to give you new ones. Your desires are going to be in keeping with the God that you've truthfully been delighting in. See how that has ordered there? God changes our thinking, He changes our desires, it changes our actions. Remember Psalm 73. Asaph said, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, truth, abiding in Him. He said, And then I discerned right thinking. And then he was ready at the end of the psalm to tell actions of all that God is. And he says that when I was bitter, when I was following after my feelings and my emotions, he acknowledged that he was simply responding to his feelings, reacting. He was, like he said, a brute beast when he was just letting the lies and the deceptions of the world to form and shape and guide his heart. So we cannot let feelings drive us. It's damaging to think that our feelings are the most important. That our feelings are the things that need to be fixed. What if I think my feelings are broken? How would I get after fixing that? And realize our emotions work exactly the way that God intended them to. When you're driving in your car and your check engine light pops on, is the answer to just unplug that light? Yes. <laughs> that might work temporarily not. It's certainly not to put duct tape over it. That's not going to help. We can't mask our feelings and try to make them go away. When that check engine light pops on your car, it means there's something wrong under the hood. And when our emotions flare up and anxiety is sparked, depression weighs us down, fear overcomes us, there's something wrong under the hood. The heart. Something's going on. Our emotions work perfectly. God's given them to us to alert us to what we need to know. And we need to go to him and his truth to find out what it is. If I allow my feelings to tell me what to do, or if I just try to mask them, think about what happens. If I'm in a deep depression, and I think that the only thing wrong with me is that I feel poorly, and I think, what can I do that would be the fastest and quickest thing and surest thing just to make my feelings go away? And I change nothing else about my thinking and nothing else about my life, nothing else about my desires. 
what will happen to the depression? It might stay if I keep doing the things that made me depressed in the first place, if I keep thinking the things that made me want what I wanted, that made me did what I did, they're going to make me feel how I feel. And my depression is going to get worse and worse and worse. And people who are in the depths of depression will tell you there is no medication that can eradicate the depths, the deepest depths of depression. You heard about people being manic before. Manic is just a term that basically means at the deepest depths and the highest highs, those people are getting after it. And so they might be on the lowest of lows on one day, and the next day they are elated. They are so pumped. And they're just doing all kinds of crazy things that you would never think that they would do because they just seem so happy. And people think, well, they're happy. I'm going to let them go and let them do it. But think about this now. If we're following our feelings and we're saying that our feelings are the only thing that's wrong with us and I'm going to do whatever it takes to make my feelings be good, that person who is acting in a manic way, they think they found something that day that makes them happy and they're being totally irrational on how hardcore they're going after that thing to make them happy. And then guess what? This makes sense, doesn't it? They go after it so hard, so headlong, and they discover, maybe a day or two later, maybe a week later, maybe a month later, it didn't work. And there's all of this effect. Money spent. Relationships burned. Work, jobs lost. Cars destroyed. Whatever it is that happened over that time. And it's all there for them to deal with after the fact. And then what do they do? They go back down into there. We can't let feelings tell us how to live. We can't think that feelings are the only thing that are wrong. Because our feelings aren't wrong. God gave them to us. Feelings are in, if you want to think of it as a train, feelings are in the caboose. The heart is the engine. That train's going to function very wrongly if you try to make it go from the other end. You can make the engine go in reverse, but if you just try to throw all the coal into the caboose, it's not going to do anything. Would you agree with that? This also helps us when we think about legalism. Legalism is... The law, thinking that the law is going to make us righteous, doing things. And the fruit of that can be coercion. There's no joy in it. It's just do what you're supposed to do because it's said you're supposed to do that. And if you do it, everything's going to be wonderful. Why isn't that good? What did God say would happen if we keep his commandments? That we would have joy. Is it wrong to fight for joy? No. But realize that fighting for joy is fighting for Christ. Going after Him. And joy is the effect. It's what comes after. It's not first. It's the wrong motivation. And it's like stapling apples on a lemon tree. That'll look great for a day or two. And then it won't be so good anymore. 
The heart is the roots, our thinking and our desires. That's the heart. And those are the things that make a tree healthy. Matthew 7, 18 says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. It's the heart, a healthy heart, right thinking, right desires, bear good fruit and bring joy. We think of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the contrast of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, then, if you think about it, is just external feelings-based change. Boy, this stinks. I did this stuff, and boy, this stinks now. I better do something else so I don't have to feel this way. That's a worldly sorrow. And when you staple those apples on a lemon tree, it's not too long before the lemons grow again. And that repentance, quote-unquote, only lasts for a short time. It's not truly repentance. But godly sorrow is an abiding in Christ. It's a changing of my thinking. It's a changing of my desires, which then results in a healthy heart and healthy fruit. Remember, repentance is turning. I was going this direction, and I'm seeing that it's wrong because I've seen the truth, and I'm turning and going towards Christ. And that lasts and gets better and better all the time. So then, what will repentance look like? It's not temporary fruit stapling. It's not feelings-based. It's not learning to love myself. It's not selfishly motivated. It cannot be driven by the fear of man. To ask myself this question, why do I want to change? And listen to the truth of what you think about why you need to change. And, and you can probably discern, or somebody else who loves you can help you and hear what you say and probably let you know how well that's going to go. Repentance is possible by the grace of God, by faith in God, through the truth of the Word of God, our right thinking, rooted in a healthy and right fear of God, our desires, which results in a delight in who God is, obedience to God, which brings joy and it brings peace. A peace that passes all understanding. May God give us grace to believe, to abide, to be changed for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these promises. God, thank you for giving us your word and, and helping us to know who you are and helping us to know who we are. And some of the things as we think through them are hard. But the hardness of them is not because they're not right. It's because we're not right. God, I pray that you would help us to renew our minds to allow our minds to be renewed by your truth. That we would follow hard after you. And God, thank you for your promises that, that we have joy in doing so. And as a result, that you would become sweeter to us as we grow and as we change. God, I thank you for what we're going to hear about next week in the last half of Genesis 3. God, I thank you that when man fell, you intervened. And you put into place everything needed to move towards the day that your son would hang on a cross 
to pay the penalty of our sin, that we would be able to be saved, forgiven, adopted, made right with you. Thank you for your grace to us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.